0: Welcome to Mysteries to Die For and this Toe Tag. I am T.G. Wolf, and I'm here with Jack, my piano player and producer. This is normally a podcast where we combine storytelling with original music to put you at the heart of a mystery. Today is a bonus episode that we call a Toe Tag, but you all know that. It's the first chapter in a fresh release in the mystery, crime, and thriller genre. And today's featured release is Playing Dead by me, T.G. Wolf. All right, let's go ahead and jump right into this one. Chapter One Fists pounded on the door, snapping the aluminum against the frame. Each crack was as sharp as a firecracker. Muscle memory born from practice had Detective Jesus de la Cruz sitting up in bed before he understood he was awake. He listened, reassessing the information his unconscious brain absorbed. The pounding. It was real and on his front door. Cruz! Cruz, we need help! Somebody's dead in the street! The voices of girls alternated between each other and knocking. Cruz kicked back the covers and climbed out of bed. The movement woke his fiancée. It's our Sunday, she mumbled grumpily. Pushing a sit-up, Aurora Williams cocked her head, listening. What's going on? No idea. Cruz snatched a shirt off the pile of dirty clothes and put it on, topping off the sleep pants. Be right back. She chuckled and threw her covers back. I've heard that before. Cruise, ding. They found the doorbell. Cruise, ding, ding. His Cape Cod home wasn't large and had gotten smaller since they started sleeping in a bedroom on the main level. He opened his front door to the expressive faces of a pair of sisters. There's a body on the triangle in front of our house. The older sister pointed toward the nearby corner. You gotta come fast. It's totally weird. The younger sister had her hands on her knees, a runner crossing the finish line. He has some sort of costume on. It wasn't a costume, Francie. It was a dress. It wasn't a dress, Sunny. It was a Halloween costume. Sunny rolled her eyes. It's September. Francie swung her gaze to Cruz. It wasn't a dress. Girls, Cruz said, pushing the screen door open and interrupting the debate. Come in, give me a minute to get dressed, and I'll go. Aurora walked into the living room, the epitome of grace. Francie, Sonny, what are you doing out so early? She wore a cream sweater with jeans, accented with her walking boot. Still without makeup, her thick hair fell around her shoulders in rings, framing her face and drawing attention to her green eyes. I found a body, Sonny said. Cruz is going to come. Keep them here, Cruz said softly in Aurora's ear, then hurried into his office where his clothes currently hung. He made time to dress. No matter what he found, he would be out in the September morning for some time. Curious neighbors, and God forbid the press, did not need to find the detective on the scene in his pajamas and an inside-out shirt. The crime scene was around the corner, no more than ten houses from Cruz's own. Two streets came together at a sharp angle, creating oddly shaped yards. An island was formed at one of the peaks, surrounded by roadway. It was the length of one of the yards facing it. Geometric colors shook brightly in the morning sun, giving the landscape a third dimension it didn't naturally have. Cruz approached, his mind's transforming the line in shapes into a macabre corpse. I called 911 and, thankfully, no one else has come out. Binny, the girl's father, said. He stood guard over the island and worn sweatpants and a sweatshirt. He was barefoot. Aurora kept the girls, Cruz said. She'll settle them down. Good. I didn't want to see this. I didn't want them to see this. Not any more than they had. Binny turned until he and Cruz were side by side. The island was part of the city's Color the Corners Chalk Festival. It took the artist two days to do it that explained the background, a mosaic reminiscent of a stained glass window, but not the character on it. Cruz thought Francie's description of a costume was accurate. The victim, male white, was in his 20s. The torso was covered by a tunic, the kind a knight might wear. Instead of regal, the tunic was decorated with hearts in groups of twos and threes, some facing up, others down. The costume was a thin fabric. Details were printed on, not embroidered. The legs were dressed in a pair of tights, the red color coordinated with the tunic. The feet were bare. The arms were bare as well. One was bent at the elbow, with the hand resting on the lower abdomen. The other was positioned upward. The hand curled around the hilt of a long dagger, the blade buried in the head. It was an unnatural position that forced the wrist, elbow, and shoulder out of the flat alignment. Cruz rounded the base of the figure, he recognized it. Someone's made him into the king of hearts. Better get shoes on, Binny. he advised as vehicles began arriving at the scene. This isn't going to be quick. I'll put some coffee on, Binnie said, and headed to the house directly behind them. There was no estimate on when the man died. His body temperature was lower than what was naturally possible given the weather. The nighttime low bottomed out at around 50 degrees. The body was low 40s. The Cuyahoga County Medical Examiner would use methods more sophisticated than temperature to estimate time of death. A cursory review of the body found no cuts, wounds, or contusions aside from the knife in the head. The blade had been driven in above the left ear. The handle was wrapped in leather, a complicated over-under weave that spoke of a skill and craftsmanship. Crews examined the wound, silver ball at the end, and found it to be slightly flattened and marred with scratches. Something about the position of the mouth drew Cruz's attention. He applied pressure on the chin, opening the jaw. Inside was the white edge of folded paper. Widening the opening, he pulled gently. The folded item came easily. It wasn't paper, exactly. It was thicker, coated. He turned it over, both sides printed with a blue elaborate pattern, reminiscent of a playing card. He unfolded it, revealing the king of hearts. Rising, he compared the body position to the card, and it was a match. He pictured the man resting his head on a table, his killer standing over him, holding the dagger in a position with one hand and using a hammer in the other to drive the point deep. There were no defensive signs. It was as if the man had simply laid down and allowed the knife to be driven into his head. The M.E. would tell him if the man was incapacitated via drugs or other means. Whatever happened, it didn't happen here. Beneath the body was the chalk of the drawing. The lines separating the colors were disturbed directly beneath, but even that was minor. There was minimal transfer to the back of the clothing. The man was set in place, not dragged, which meant either multiple people were involved or one person strong enough to handle a body. The man was average to short with sinewy arms and legs. Crews put him in the 160-pound camp. Ready to tackle the timetable, Cruz went up the short walk to where Binny waited with a cup of coffee. It's nice and hot, Binny said, holding out an insulated Cleveland Browns cup. Cruz went up one step to accept. I appreciate it. Tell me what happened this morning. You know, Cruz, I can't tell you much. I was dead asleep when Sonny screamed. You know how it is. Out one second, then wide awake. I went to the front door. I could tell there was something on the island, but not what it was. He pointed to the screen, now hiding the crime scene. It didn't make sense until I was nearly to the sidewalk. I told the girls to go get you and ran back into the house to get my phone. I didn't even think about shoes. I called 911 and waited for you or them to arrive. What time was this cruise asked? Benny pulled out his phone and searched for the outgoing calls. Eight minutes after seven, the sky was light, but the street was still dark. You know, you arrived just a few minutes later. Cruz did know, but wanted details to supplement his own observations. What about cars on the street? Anyone leaving the area? Any vehicles that didn't belong? His witness thought for a moment and then shook his head. Everything was quiet. I didn't even see anyone talk walking their dog yet. I had someone go house to house, Cruz said. Anyone who was awake was in their kitchen or backyard. There was no answer next door. Any idea where your neighbor is? Metro General Hospital, Binnie said. He works first shift in the maintenance department. He left at 20 to seven. When he started his car, I woke enough to read the clock and decide it was too early to get up. Binnie pointed to a pair of patrol officers waving their way. I think they want you. We're close to wrapping up here, Cruz said. Let me see what they want and then we'll go to my house. I need to ask your daughters a few questions. Cruz left the porch, turning his attention to the officers. What do you have? The victim has been identified as Alexander Carter, age 27, the leading officer answered. His listed address is his parents, but he spent a lot of time as a guest of the county. In and out for possession, assault, petty theft. He's detective? Cruz stalked to the protective tent. Detective? Cruz? The officer hurried to keep up. Cruz took a knee next to the dead man's shoulder and studied the face. He'd seen it in pictures a dozen times, only twice in person. In every case, the eyes had been narrowed with hate, the chin tipped up in a challenge. Do you know this guy? The officer asked. Not just me. We've been after Rotten Carter since July. Send me the information on the next akin. I'll make the trip after we wrap up here. I'll f fo- i will I need to follow up with the girls. Go back through the neighborhood and see if anyone here knows Arvik. The officers left the tent to execute the orders while Cruz studied the man he daydreamed about killing. Without the attitude he wore like skin, Rotten Carter had a clean cut look. He didn't have ink tatted across his body or battle earned scars saying the man fought his way through life. He could have been a family man with a white-collar job. He could have been an ordinary guy earning an honest living. But he wasn't. Rotten Carter was a mid-level dealer who had been on the Cleveland Police's radar for years. His sister, Natasha Sasha Carter, was a confidential informant to Cruz's best friend, narcotics detective Matt Yablonski. Sasha snitched with her brother's permission, or at least his knowledge. She fed information on Rotten's competition, keeping her brother's territory solid. One day last January, Sasha got in touch with Yablonski and asked for a meetup. She didn't follow their normal protocols, wanting Yablonski to come to her place. He arrived at the agreed upon time and found Sasha overdosing. Yablonski called for backup and began CPR. Rotten walked in and misread the situation, and while Rotten and Yablonsky fought, Sasha died. Rotten blamed Yablonsky. He focused his energy and resources on finding the man who killed his sister. Bad luck or bad timing put Rotten in the same place at the same time as Yablonsky and Yablonsky's wife, Aaron. Rotten saw his opportunity for revenge, and he took it. That night, Aaron and Aurora were driving to a restaurant for a celebratory night out. Rain poured down, making the street dark and the road slick. There was no evidence Rotten Carter tracked Aaron's car through downtown Cleveland. There was no proof Rotten drove the car and instigated the crash. There were no witnesses to point to Rotten as the reason that Aaron Yablonski was dead and Aurora's legs might never be the same. And yet, there was no doubt. Alone in the tent with the corpse of the man he hated, Cruz felt empty. This didn't fix a damn thing. And now it would be his job to find the killer who had done him and the rest of the city a favor. Cruz didn't want the job, but he wasn't going to pass it on. He was going to use it to his advantage and prove Rotten Carter was behind the crash. Closure. That's what he could give Aurora and Yablonsky. Speaking of which... Cruz pulled out his personal phone and called his friend. After five rings, it went to voicemail. He ended the call and switched to text. Get up and call me. ASAP. The Emmy's vehicle backed into position as he walked out of the tent. Greetings were made and he stayed nearby, watching as the work of removing the dead was done. This wasn't going to be an easy case. There was no shortage of people who wanted Rotten Carter dead, but the vast majority of those would kill fast and simple. A knife to the kidneys, a bullet to the head. A dagger to the temple may have been fast. But it wasn't simple. The elaborate arrangement had the feel of a stage being set. Given the dead man was dressed as a card, maybe a better analogy was the feel of a hand being dealt. Cruz returned to the sidewalk and met Binny in front of the house. Together, they rounded the corner, crossed the street, and walked to Cruz's house. They talked about trivial things to avoid the monumental things. Sports, weather, food, the usual topics between Clevelanders. The yard is looking good, Cruz, Binny said. Those flowers are really taking off. Cruz hated the flowers. Well, he hated the reason he had the flowers, but he was working on it. My mother's fiance is a plant wholesaler. I get his sloppy seconds. Second part wasn't true, but damn Roberto Juarez and his green thumb. If those are the leftovers, sign me up, Benny said laughing. Did he build the terrace too? My brother-in-law designed it, Cruz said, and we built it together. He felt pride in the work that he and Tony Moreno had done, even if it was filled with Roberto's plants. He led Benny up the walk to his house and opened the door. Aurora, girls, we're back. Cruz pulled his Cleveland-issued police car in front of a house owned by Michael and Ava Carter. This neighborhood on Cleveland's near west side rose up at a time when every house was built differently. Most were two-story, more than half were single family. All had trees in the patch of grass between the curb and sidewalk known as the tree lawn. A middle-aged woman knelt on the grass, weeding a flower bed. A man in his late 20s used an electric edger along the driveway. Cruz left the car, walking up the drive apron. Mrs. Carter, he called loudly. The motor on the edger fell silent. The man using it turned to face Cruz while the kneeling woman rose. I'm Ava Carter. She took a step, hand on her back, before she could rise to her full height. Not as flexible as I used to be. What can I do for you? I'm Detective Jesus de la Cruz, Cleveland police. Cruz held out his credentials. I'm here about your son, Alexander. Mrs. Carter began blinking rapidly. She walked to her front step, sitting on the third, drawing her legs up close. Is he dead? The younger man hurried to the woman's side. Mom, just because the police are here doesn't mean Alex is dead. She shook her head. If he was hurt again, someone would have called from the hospital. If he was arrested again, he would have called, or the bail bond, or the defense attorney. The only reason the police would come here in person to see me is that he's dead. Cruz did visit people for other reasons just wasn't the case this time. Your son was found this morning. I am sorry for your loss. Would you like to talk inside? Yeah, right, the man stormed up the front steps. You all were probably slapping high fives. Rotten Carter is dead. Peter, his his mother put a lot of meaning into the name, stopping him before he could enter the house. She took a breath. Call your father and your sister. They need to come home. Peter pulled his phone from his back pocket as he went in. It was Cruz who helped Mrs. Carter to her feet and kept his hand on her elbow as they climbed the steps. He opened the front door, guiding her into the living room. Peter snapped into the phone as he paced the room in the doorway to the living room, in the doorway between the living room and dining room. A cop is here. He said Alex is dead this time. As he spoke, his mother began to cry silent tears rolled down her cheeks. Then Peter set the phone down. They're both on their way. Please sit down. Mrs. Carter sank into the couch. I knew something happened. I haven't heard from Alex in four days. He always calls me back. Four days, Cruz repeated, taking the chair closest to her. He counted back on the calendar. You saw him on Wednesday? He came over for dinner Tuesday night. She swallowed hard. He didn't stay long, maybe until eight. I called him on Wednesday because some mail came for him. He didn't call back. What did you talk about at dinner? Cruz asked. She shrugged, normal stuff. We had the television on and watched a few sitcoms. We didn't have to talk when we were together. When he didn't call back, did you contact any of his friends? She shook her head. I don't have their phone numbers. Did you file a missing persons report? She closed her eyes. Her sadness, palpable. I love my son, Detective, but I know who he is. No, I didn't call the police. How did he die? Peter blurted out the question without breaking stride. His mother winced, but he didn't notice. His focus was entirely on Cruz. When and where and how did he die? We don't have all the answers, Cruz said. He was found around seven this morning, but he died sometime earlier. I'm waiting on information from the M.E., It would help to pin down when he went missing. When was the last time you spoke to your brother? A few weeks ago, he said. We were both here for Anya's birthday dinner. She's our other sister. Do you have contact with any of Alex's friends? Cruz asked. Peter gave Cruz a deadpan stare. I'm sure you have a list of my brother's friends, he said, using air quotes. You don't need us for that. What are you even doing here? He asked, getting agitated. You didn't do anything when Sasha was killed. Alex caught the guy in her house. He shot her up with fucking horse tranquilizers, killing her. And what did you do? Nothing. Peter, his mother said quietly. No, Mom, this needs to be said. Peter spoke to his mother without looking away from Cruz. Alex was into some bad shit. None of us expected him to live to 30. But Sasha? Sasha was good. And now she's dead and nobody at the Cleveland Police gives a fuck. Peter Carter didn't know half as much as he thought he did, and Cruz was not in a position to enlighten him. So he stood there, being the target for the brother's grief. She died over six months ago. Have there been any arrests? He paused, creating space for an answer he wasn't going to get. If you couldn't do anything for someone as good as my sister, what are you going to do for my brother? Nothing. That's what you're going to do? Shit, he said, pacing away, dismissing Cruz. This is a waste of time. Cruz stepped into the pause in the monologue. Unusual circumstances surround your brother's death. While his killer may have thought he was being clever, he was leaving a trail. If your family can help me, there's a real possibility of finding the culprit and holding him responsible. Mrs. Carter came to her feet. What do you want to know? I mentioned unusual circumstances, Cruz said. He was found in a costume of the King of Hearts. Did he talk about the costume or possibly going to a party? King of Hearts, she repeated thoughtfully. He liked playing poker. He went to the casino now and then. She went to the entertainment center under the flat mounted screen and pulled a set of cards from the drawer. He left these here. She thumbed through the cards as she walked back, stopping in front of Cruz. The Suicide King. Did my son kill himself, Detective? No, Cruz said. Little else was definitive in the investigation. No way, Rotten Carter put that knife in his own head. Did Alex play at private games, he asked. Mrs. Carter sat down again. Yes, he said that they played all night. It was an angle to investigate. Alex came over for dinner on Tuesday. Was that part of his routine? Yes and no, his mother said. Alex and his father don't get along, Peter snorted derisively. And whose fault is that? Cruz ignored the outburst and encouraged his witness to do the same. Please go on. My husband works construction. Depending on where he's working that week, he might stay at a hotel closer to the job. When he's out of town, I call Alex to come to dinner. Dad is going to be pissed, Peter muttered, intending to be heard. Mrs. Carter narrowed her gaze at him. This is my house, too, and Alex is my son. She closed her eyes, taking a deep breath. Detective, would you like to go to Alex's house? I have the keys. Peter stepped between his mother and the front door. Mom, what are you doing? She peered at him, her strength much larger larger than her size. I'm doing everything I can for Alex. You've never understood, Peter. Maybe you will when you're a father. Alex is mine, same as you, Anya, and Sasha. I may not have been able to be everything you need, but I am the one person you will always have. Always." She stepped around her son to the door. "'Coming, Detective?' Cruz respected the determination it took for Mrs. Carter to stand up to her adult son. She needed someone on her side, and he was it. Yes, ma'am." Cruz parked in front of a two-story house in need of paint. The front lawn didn't need mowing because there was no grass. Any vegetation thinking of rooting in the small rectangle had long been dissuaded from the idea. Mrs. Carter was at the side of the house. The screen door rested against her backside as she worked the key in the door. Well, keys. There were three locks on the door. Alex bought this house about two months ago, she said. It's a renovation project in progress. He was getting into flipping houses. This was his third. He made good money off the first two. Well, it would have been good if he was faster at it. He likes to take his time, getting everything right. I guess this is mine now, officially the third lock gave way. Here we go. Cruz absorbed the idea of Rotten Carter as a real estate flipper. He'd been digging on the guy since the night of the accident and hadn't pinged on the house. The only address he had on record was the one his parents owned. What do you mean by it being yours? He asked. Well, Alex bought the house in my name, she said. I mean, I signed the papers, of course. He didn't forge my signature. Her tone reprimanded Cruz for adding sins to her son's list. Cruz followed her up the four steps into the kitchen. I wasn't thinking that, as much as, based on what Peter said, what your husband thought of the arrangement. Oh, he knows, she said. Alex paid cash for the houses, so there wasn't a risk of it coming back on us to pay the mortgage. My husband hoped the home reno business would be the thing that finally pulled Alex away from drugs. Knowing the house legally belonged to Ava Carter did two things for Cruz. First, it explained why they hadn't found it earlier. And second, it cleared any issues with him entering and searching the house. You know what your son does, he asked, besides flipping houses? She gave him a sad smile. I didn't want to know. But between bailing him out of jail and listening to Peter, I could not know. You're probably wondering why I stand by him. He's yours, Cruz said, repeating her own words back. I'm pretty sure I'm my mother's in the same way. Nice kitchen. She smiled a little, working to keep it together as they stood in the center of a space twice the size of Cruz's own kitchen. The appliances were quality, the countertops quartz, the cabinets new. This was a kitchen laid out with a cook in mind. Very nice, he thought, making mental notes on the refrigerator and the cabinet design. It is, isn't it? she said. Alex is smart. He could have been an architect. All through school he was on the honor roll. Alex is also driven by money. There was always an angle with him. A new great idea. She shook her head. I was naive back then. I didn't know what he was doing right under my own roof. Many times, Cruz said, the parents are the last to know. Her gaze dropped to the floor. Even that, if that isn't the truth, thank you for it. She lifted her head and sniffled. Alex did not get Sasha addicted. One of her boyfriends did. All of us told her he wasn't good enough, but she was in love. You know how people are at that age. By the time he did her the favor of dropping her, she was an addict. Everyone knew it for her. She overdosed twice and still wouldn't stop. Alex took her in. At least he would know what she was doing and she wouldn't be alone, just in case. Cruz felt her pain. You would have to be a heartless monster not to. What your son said about the investigation into Sasha's death, it isn't true. The man Alex found in the bedroom wasn't a dealer. He was a good Samaritan. He tried to save her. Cruz didn't tell her that Alex had misinterpreted Yablonsky's actions. There was no saying if Sasha Carter would have lived if the CPR hadn't been interrupted. There was no reason to add to a mother's heartache. We have a lead on the man who did sell her the fentanyl-laced drug. Building a case against him has proven to be difficult, but we aren't giving up. So they knew who the dealer known as the ice cream man was. Problem number one was lack of solid evidence. Problem number two was he was a cop and he knew how to play the game. Then I won't either. She led him through the dining room. If you don't mind, I'm going to sit here while you do what you have to do. Not a problem, Cruz said, pulling out a chair for her. I'll call you if I need you. With her settled, Cruz pulled on a pair of gloves and went back to the kitchen. He opened every drawer and cabinet, inspected each appliance, and rifled through all the boxes and containers. It wasn't hard to find the inventory. Rotten Carter hadn't tried to hide it. This wasn't the first time Cruz had been confronted with reconciling two very different views of the same person. He used to ask, which was real, but experience taught him they both were. To achieve the position Carter had, it stood to reason he was smart and had a natural business sense. To control a territory, he also had to be aggressive and willing to do what others would respect or fear. The house remodeling was unexpected, but here too was a stroke of brilliance. Buy a house, use it while you remodel, then move on. It likely provided a tool for laundering money. Using his mother's name for purchase, put a layer of smoke between him and anyone searching for him. The living room was rough, the walls primed but not painted, the subfloor exposed and trim missing. The bonus room had the walls finished, but the floor was also stripped onto the subfloor. The basement was open to a washer and dryer. A large amount of remaining space was stacked with paint cans, small tools, and other tricks of the trade. It would take a crew to go through the piles to find any evidence. The bathroom at the top of the second floor landing was fully finished. It was a modern use of a small space, a soaker tub with a hand wand set under a pair of stained glass windows. The bedroom across the hall was over the living room. Crews pushed open the refinished wood door and stepped in. A woman sat up in bed pulling the covers to her chest. Who the fuck are you? All right, that is our first chapter in Playing Dead. So it is a mystery. A body is put, here's my review, sorry, forgot that part. Um, So at the time I'm recording this, the book has not been released yet. It is, I'm recording it on uh, the 10th and this comes out on the 19th. So I don't have, um, I can't draw from other people's reviews at this point. So I'm going to put my T.G. Wolf Mysteries to Die For hat on and do a review of my own story. So, playing dead is a mystery. The body is put on display in Detective Jesus de la Cruz's neighborhood. The victim isn't random, but someone Cruz and the Cleveland police have been after. Alexander Rotten Carter, but you all knew that. There was nothing plain and simple about this murder. Point in fact. The corpse was dressed as the King of Hearts, the Suicide King, now cruises on the case to find answers to Carter's killing and to the activities that hit much closer to home. Bottom line, playing dead is for you if you like complex mysteries and being part of the detective's professional and personal life. Alright, so, strengths of the story. Playing Dead is the fourth book in the De La Cruz series and deals as much with the ups and downs of the personal life of Jesus De La Cruz as it does with the mystery. The characters continue to grow from past novels, making it feel like we're catching up with old friends. The main characters of Cruz, his fiancée Aurora, his best friend Matt Jablonski and awkward brainiac friend Professor Grayson Manor are fully developed, having strengths that bridge challenges and weaknesses that work against them. The side characters often offer comic relief to the intensity of the murder. The mystery itself ties off storylines from the last two books. Reading prior books is not a necessity in following the murder itself. The motivations and actions of the suspects are fully contained within this book. Reading prior stories will be helpful in understanding the emotional strain that the victim, Rotten Carter, caused to the cast of characters. And I know, for most of us book lovers, it's a really hard idea to start a series you know, at something like the fourth book. But for those who do want to jump in, I think it's pretty doable. The story is told linearly, including both cruises, on the clock, and personal time. This drives the pacing, as Cruz, like all of us, juggles the demands of a challenging professional life and a full private life, which in this case includes a best friend who's treading dangerously close to crossing over the line. Okay, so where does this story fall short of ideal? As much as every author out there wants to put a perfect book out there for readers, I think we all recognize that you can get caught up and not see the forest for the trees type thing. So. Where do I think that mine fell short of ideal or could for some readers? Well, for lovers of standalone mysteries, where the story is 100% about the murder, the amount or the degree to which they incorporate Cruz's private life may not feel as rewarding. Uh, in fact, some of you may actually feel like it gets in the way of the mystery. Again, I think this is a subjective thing. If you like knowing more about the, the life and times of your detective then you like it, if you're really like, just give me the mystery, you'll be like, okay, that that got a little in the way. As with all series, starting out at book four, as I said, has the potential to leave new readers feeling like they're left out of the story or you don't quite get you know, what's going on. Um, so you may not get as immersed in the emotions that the characters are feeling. Uh, certainly as an author, I work to make it welcoming to new readers, um, but it's always a challenge with the series. So I'm very interested to see uh, what readers think as they dive into this book. Hopefully they will uh, find it amusing because this is entertainment, of course, and something that will help you, you know, escape the realities of whatever you're dealing with. So Playing Dead was released from Down and Out Books and is promoted by Partners in Crime Tours. It is available from Amazon and other online retailers. Partners in Crime Tours represents a network of 300 plus bloggers offering tailor-made virtual book tours and marketing options for crime, mystery, and thriller writers from around the world. Founded in 2011, PICT offers virtual book tours for well-established and best-selling authors, as well as those just starting out. PICT prides itself on tailoring packages for authors with a personal touch from the tour coordinators. For more information, check out their website, partnersincrimetours.com of course the link is in the show notes well that wraps us up come back next week for a regular episode of season seven games people play km rockwood has crafted a very subtle mystery that will have you thinking pretty hard the title is hard scrabble where you guessed it scrabble is our featured game with that take us out jack